0: Culture is about discipline. Culture is about uh, seeing a candidate that you want to recruit and not moving forward because you believe that candidate's not going to be a adding to your culture. That's actually that actually requires discipline. Hello everyone and welcome to the FinTech
1: Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armazán. My guest today is Adalberto Flores, founder and CEO of Queski, a Guadalajara-based buy-now-pay-later and online consumer lender and one of Latin America's fintech OGs. Since inception in 2012, Queski has issued more than 5 million loans online and has raised over $300 million from Altus Ventures, Core Ventures Group, Angel Ventures, Cathay Innovation, and many more. In this episode, we discuss challenges and lessons for founders in tough raising environments and emerging markets, and how Adal managed to raise seed capital back in 2012, importance of culture building, and actually how you can use your company culture to attract high-quality talent, the state of BNPL in Mexico, and how Queski is using this product to enable the 60% unbanked population of the country to access the financial system and start building credit, why Guadalajara is known for tequila, mariachis, and technology, and how it became the Silicon Valley of Mexico, and just a lot more. Hope you enjoy my great conversation with Adal Flores from Cueski. Oh, Adal, welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast. Great to have you here. I'm guessing you're joining us all the way from Guadalajara, Mexico.
0: That is correct, Miguel. Great, uh, great. Uh, thank you for having me here. And that is correct. I'm currently in Guadalajara, Mexico. This is, uh, now, this is a place yeah. where tequila, mariachi were born, and it, it's known to be Mexico, Silicon Valley. So it's tequila, mariachi, in technology.
1: <laughs> it's a good combination. Uh, why do you think that is, uh, particularly the, the Silicon Valley part? Um, you know, wh- why did it become this, this hub for technology in the country?
0: Yeah, so a couple of decades ago, a few technology companies like, um, I think it was like IBM, HP, all of these blue chip companies, they thought about um, doing some sort of like nearshoring. Uh, opportunity in guadalajara they wanted to have like access to kind of like you know cheap labor not very sophisticated technical uh talent uh near silicon valley and um and they thought that guadalajara could be a great uh great place to establish themselves um uh guadalajara is the second largest city in mexico after mexico city it's actually close to to san francisco and uh, it's large. It, it enjoys a really strong um, academic um, you know, background and foundation. So they decided to establish um, their near-shoring operations here in Guadalajara. And then they discovered that there were really, really progressive and, and sophisticated engineering capabilities here in Guadalajara. And they decided to, um, I think Intel actually bought a company that's also based in Guadalajara. So what they did is they decided to establish A strong relationship with the academy and the universities to develop a program in which they could actually, you know, develop engineers in Guadalajara. Uh, So so fast forward, what you have is that, um, you know, other companies followed. So, for example, Tata from India and Oracle from, you know, San Francisco uh, or the Bay Area and then many other, you know, even startups started to like Uyala and Wiseline, Skycatch started to kind of like establish themselves in Guadalajara. And, uh, and fast forward, we have a vibrant, you know, very strong engineering talent pool here in Guadalajara. And that's why it's known to be Mexico's Silicon Valley. That's kind of the main reason. Did you
1: ever consider launching Queski elsewhere? Did you ever think about Mexico City? How, how did you land on, on Guadalajara?
0: Yeah, we, we did. We were, we were thinking about launching uh, Queski in Mexico City And uh, in in the Bay Area in San Francisco Silicon Valley, so we discarded. We didn't we didn't go for the Bay Area because we felt that it was really important to be very close to the market and really understand the market, like really really be with the consumers and and um, and all the people that were going to be using us and things like that. So it was, and then so we nailed between San Francisco uh, between Mexico City and Guadalajara, and then we said, so what's going to be the most scarce resource? When we start the company, is it going to be um, investments like, you know, raising capital? Is it going to be partnerships? Is it is it going to be engineers and technical talents? Like that was kind of like the what's going to be the, the scarcest resource. And we ended up concluding you know, with a conclusion that uh, it was going to be engineering talent and technical talent. And we felt that Guadalajara was actually really well suited for that. I was about to move to Mexico City um, because it's the largest city and that's where partnerships are and things like that. And uh, at that point of time, we thought that investments were were probably gonna, gonna are, are were gonna be coming out of um, you know international investors like from especially from the United States. So that's why we decided to start in Guadalajara because uh, we felt that uh, the big uh, access to a, a strong uh, technical talent pool was the most uh, scarce resource, and and establishing ourselves here was going to be giving us a competitive advantage.
1: Yeah. So let's. Uh, I guess let's. Backtrack. Let's uh, you know hear about the the story of quest a little bit, but more importantly, I, I'd like to zoom in on the fact that you started almost a decade ago. You're, you're definitely one of the OGs in fintech in Mexico, but that means that you started when it was almost a desert, right? When it comes to competition, when it comes to funding uh, funds, really, really looking at Mexico. Um, so what were the challenges early on and, and, you know, how did you get the ball rolling?
0: Yeah. So, so many, many challenges. I think um, the most uh, important challenge was actually getting access to capital. Like nowadays everybody can, or not everybody, but it's, it's relatively easy to have a good startup idea, have a nice uh, beautifully designed PowerPoint presentation, and then be able to raise, um, you know, several millions of dollars with, uh, with a, you know, double-digit uh, pre-money valuation, pre-revenues type of thing. That's what we're seeing right now. Uh, but not, you know, back in in those early days, it was just so difficult to raise capital. And um, I remember when we were pitching investors. Like uh, the vast majority of investors, they didn't just like responded to us. They they didn't respond to our emails. They didn't wanted to meet with us and, and things like that. And uh, we were lucky because one of our, you know, one person that used to be my mentor. He said, hey, I'm going to be lead. like he was an angel investor and he was opening his own seed fund from San Francisco. Uh, it's called Core Ventures Group. Um, um, and he said, I think if you convince um, a fund, they were known to be Crunch Fund, Crunch Fund. Um, they're now known Tuesday Capital. That's their name. And they said, if you convince Tuesday Capital then we're or Crunch Fund, we're going to be leading your, your, your seed round. And um, you know, we convinced Pat Gallagher to invest in in Questi, and and so they they actually co-led the seed round, and then it was easy for us to get access to capital in Mexico after that, uh, because these were like uh, very respectable funds that uh, were uh, believing in the idea. Uh, but it was just so difficult to to be there. And then um, you know, for example, Y Combinator was uh, it was very difficult. We got. Uh, Rejected several times from Y Combinator. The first time is because we didn't know how to do credit. Like we didn't come from credit background, and then uh, we didn't know how to do fraud. So we got rejected several times from. We never got in into Y Combinator, and then access to talent was a little bit more difficult as well because um, you know nowadays everybody like uh, everybody speaks about unicorns and and the startups are raising so much capital that uh, I I would even argue that the the, 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 the best. Or the most west, you know, the, the, the best salaries and the best compensations um, are very likely coming out of the uh, startups uh, that have raised, um, you know, series B and plus type of startups. they are actually giving really, really interesting compensations better than. You know, consulting firms and banks and things like that. And so that's it's cool to be part of a startup, um, you know, system in Mexico. But uh, you know, when we started, it was just so difficult, and and even you know, there was no um, success, to, like this, visi- you know, visible success story in Mexico at that point of time. So it was more difficult to con- convince people to join the company. So that was another thing that uh, we were, um, you know, battling with.
1: It seems that finding talent. It's always hard and founders are always complaining for different reasons, right? One is, you know, a few years ago, it was because not a lot of people knew about startups. You couldn't convince talent to make the jump. Also, not a lot of people were trained in startup speak, right? Whereas now that has changed. But at the same time, there are hundreds of startups, regional ones as well, that you're competing with. Uh, so there's always challenges, right? But what has been your approach to attract this talent, because you've obviously succeeded at it both in the early days and
0: today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So I would say it's it's a combination of several things. The first one is, um, so I, I think we've been able to attract really, really top talent, like uh, like the top people. Like um, you know, one example is the the only person from Mexico that won the gold medal in the global math Olympics. And the gold medal in programming Olympics, like both of the medals, the only Mexican in the history. Um, he used to be an intern in Questi, and and we have several, like we have several people that are really, really high technically skilled and very talented. Um, you know, you know, the first people that actually built our credit models were actually what had they had the post PhD in particle physics, and so when you attract very high quality people. Um, it's kind of like a magnet. Uh, so people want to work with them. So that's one aspect. The second one I would say is the culture of the company. We, I think we have a very specific culture um, and um, around uh, making sure we can, we can recruit people that are incredibly smart but are not jerks, if I can say it this way, which is making sure we have people that are really, really smart, but at the same time, really collaborative uh, with a lot of uh, sense of intellectual humility um, with a lot of autonomy and um, and people that are mission driven as opposed to just purely kind of like mercenaries if I can say it this way like um, we 've been able to for, to be very disciplined and the the fact the you know culture is about discipline culture is about uh, Seeing a candidate that you want to recruit and not moving forward because you believe that candidate's not going to be adding to your culture. That's actually that actually requires discipline or having somebody that, um, you know, is requesting a promotion, but it's not fully aligned to the values of a company and make and you know that that's going to in the short term create some mm-hmm. issues. Uh, but not promoting that person or promoting a person that is actually culture driven, you know, it's, it's, a lot about discipline. So I think we've been able to be disciplined around culture and that actually, you know, people can recognize it because the, and whenever you have a strong culture in which people feel, I would say really passionate and proud about the way, you know, about the work they have, they will automatically start bringing their own friends and, and, and try to recruit them to the company because they feel they're going to be happy, right? That's uh it feels just honest. And, and uh, so I think that's an, the other thing. And then the other one, it's finally, I would say it's just making sure we can be really good in compensation as well. That's also important. Like uh, we want to make sure that uh, we know that the best people globally have the best opportunities, essentially, like uh, globally. Right now, nowadays, in a, in a post-COVID type of world, they have the best opportunities. And and we need to make sure that we can also compensate them accordingly. Um, so we we are we, we typically try to be really focused on making sure that the compensation makes sense for, you know, I'm going to say the global citizens of the world. And and you know, many of the people value the equity a lot of a company. Like um, we you know we try to make them we we offer equity to every single person in the company, no matter what team or what position or, or what salary range they are. And we want to make them. Owners, essentially, we, you know, through stock options, they can become owners. Um, and we want to bring in people that are essentially, you know, they have the owner mentality. So that's another thing that we also want to work on as well. And it's worked really well.
1: You mentioned that people value the equity. I'm guessing that wasn't always the case. I'm guessing that eight years ago, uh, it wasn't the same conversation.
0: Yeah, no, it, it, was, it was a little bit more difficult for them to understand equity. It's I would say it's still a little bit challenging to, you know, like um, people coming out of Latin American countries. You know, it's interesting because they come more out of a debt culture as opposed to an equity culture. So if you see the Anglo-Saxon cultures, you know, like uh, United States, Australia, uh, United Kingdom, Canada, they all have these like, uh, you know, like the stock exchanges like they have, you know, in the United States, you have thousands of companies. In the stock exchange, in the different, and they have several stock exchanges and things like that. And in Mexico, we just have, you know, a handful of companies that are uh, public, right? And I think that um, if you go to these Anglo-Saxon cultures, one of the things that it's interesting about the, the Anglo-Saxon culture is that they understand the value equity. Everything, everybody thinks about the equity. Like you can even, you know, in in Mexico, for example, the, the people that actually invest in the stock market are people that. Uh, it's not really common to see people like there. There need to be like really hardcore financial geeks to be investing in the stock market, if I can put it this way. And in the United States, everybody like you can talk to, you know, no, no matter who you want to talk to, they're going to be they they have some, some sort of like opinions. So I think um, it's a challenge. But I think that the fact that people see it in the news um, and they see how much these valuations are coming up and and even. The fact that some some of the early employees and founders are, uh, you know, there's you know of these companies that are doing really well, they are starting to get, um, you know, f- you know financially, you know, they're doing really well financially, at least in paper. And some of them are actually already doing secondaries and and they've been able to kind of like monetize a little bit of that that um, you know having your neighbor say, hey, yes, I, use, I, I work in a startup and, you know, and guess what I did, uh, you know, this is what my equity is worth and I could have sold or I did sell a part of that in a secondary transaction um, that actually, you know, gets the attention of other people. So I think, uh, I think it's coming. It's going to, it's going to, it's not as, it's still, it's still a really, you know, early stages and work in progress, progress type of thing, but it's coming and people are, are starting to recognize the value of equity.
1: Let's talk a bit about your your business model. Uh, now you are fully focused on buy now, pay later, right? So maybe tell us about the offering and and what the market looks like today.
0: Yeah. So so um, like from day one, I wanted to do buy now, pay later. That was the original product that I wanted to you know to, to build. I thought it would it had a really strong potential. But um, we believe that the timing was not correct because. Um, there was low access to mobile internet in Mexico, and there was um, e-commerce was actually really low in terms of the percentage of total retail in Mexico. So, so we, we we felt that we wanted to start with a lending product just to start building the capabilities on underwriting, customer support, collections, and just generally understanding the behavior of the people and the the consumers in Mexico. But just um a few months before the pandemic, we decided that uh, we wanted to go all in in binalpilator and and and, binopulator and, 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 um, and that was the original product that I had uh, in the center of my heart, and I wanted to you know go all in on that product so we did uh, focus on on that product and essentially the way it works is um if you see the the all the binalpilator companies around the world they're actually you know essentially the way it works and the way we work is so we give we are integrated into the checkout of a merchant. It's either an e-commerce checkout, a digital checkout, or a physical checkout in the store, in the physical store. And we integrate to them and we offer them the ability, we offer customers the ability to buy a product and pay it, get it immediately, take, you you know, essentially buy immediately, and then pay it later in four installments with no interest rate. That's how it works. Four installments, no interest rate. And the interesting thing is we're not requiring people to have a bank account. We're not charging interest rates. And we're not requiring people to have a bank account. And we're not forcing people to do a, a down payment. And this, this type of feature in Mexico is actually really important. Because, um, you, you know, in Mexico, like about... the 57% of the people in Mexico work in the informal economy and a little bit more than 60% of the people in Mexico do not have a bank account. So if you force people to have a bank account then you're actually reducing your TAM and your potential market you know for more than half. But if you allow anyone in Mexico as long as they are legally qualified to re- receive uh, a credit product which is more than 18 years old then you're not only solving a credit aspect, right? Like you can, you know, people can actually go buy now and pay later, but you're solving a payment issue because anyone in Mexico can buy online and offline. So in that sense, we're actually competing against cash, if I can say it this way, right? Um, And we're competing against, uh, we're trying to see if we can can convince anyone in Mexico to use this product, but specifically if we can enable that uh, 60% of the population in Mexico to integrate themselves into the digital economy and make sure that they can pay, um, you know, as well. So that's kind of the, the type of product we're, we're building. So essentially, it's enabling customers to buy, buy now, pay later. No bank account required, no interest rate, no down payment. And uh, it's no interest rate. And then we charge, how do we make money? So we charge the merchant a transaction fee. Um, it's a little bit more than PayPal. So it's similar to PayPal, but it's a little bit more because we're assuming a higher credit risk. And merchants are willing to do that because we are increasing them their conversion rates, their average ticket size, and we're increasing their total address the market as well.
1: This all makes sense. And it's clearly a, a huge opportunity. Sounds like there's also the opportunity for your customers to start building not just a digital transaction history, but also a credit history. How is, I guess, the BNPL market being interpreted by the Mexican market, by the regulator, is, is there a path to, I guess, help customers, you know, build
0: data? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so um, every company has a different uh, thesis. And I would say it, it's its a little bit adventurous to generalize how the market is seeing it. But I would say, at least on our end, our thesis is that uh, BNPL can become the wedge for the financial lives of people in Mexico. And we believe we we do report to the credit bureaus. We get information from the credit bureaus because affordability is really important. And our credit challenge is significantly more important because it's it's a much bigger credit challenge because we're essentially... Underwriting anyone in Mexico, no matter if they're banked or or not banked, and uh, if they have a credit history or not. We, you know, we can underwrite anyone because we've done it. um, I think we're rapidly approaching 6 million transactions already. So we have a strong database. I I believe we have like about, we've actually scored very probably, you know, like about 5% of the people in Mexico. And um, so we know really well, like even just knowing their postal code, we, we know... Some probability of them paying us back or not, right? You know that's the level of granularity we can we can do. But um, so we we get information from the credit bureau because we do care about affordability, and we report to the credit bureaus. So our goal is that we can we can convince them to start using financial services, and we can convince them to build a credit history without requiring them to have a bank account. And um, and once they've seen. How competitive it is for them to be part of the financial system, and how important it is for them to be part of the system. Uh, hopefully, they're going to gradually, you know, request access to more type of financial products, open a bank account, and and hopefully integrate into the formal economy so that they start paying taxes, they have access to social security and things like that. So we we believe that uh, through our product we can transform a challenge that we've been trying to work on as a country for decades, we can help in that challenge to get more people into the financial system, more people into the formal economy so that they can pay taxes and, and give access to people to more social security as well. Eventually does that make sense? Yeah, it
1: it very much does. And I think you've given us a hint of where Queski might be headed in the future, which, you know, is I guess expanding your product offering and your wallet share Um, But it seems like every other venture-backed company in in Mexico or in Latin America is thinking about expanding beyond their initial borders. Um, Have you considered also an international expansion or is just the Mexican market too big for you to start thinking about that?
0: Yeah, the response is yes and yes. (laughs) So we do see ourselves as an international company that wants to expand to other countries. Uh, we have people already in South America and Europe. Um, um, we have people from, you know, from Cuba. We have people from the United States. We're interviewing people from Asia. So we, we are, we, we do see ourselves as an international company. We want to expand to other countries. Um, I would say, nevertheless, that uh, we believe that the Mexican market still has a, run, a long way to go. Um, so Mexico is uh, one of the top 15 economies in the world, like one five. And then, at the same time, Mexico is one of the top five most unbanked countries in the world. Like, imagine this: it's one of the top fifteen most big and, you know, most uh, important economies, but it's most, one of the top five most unbanked. Um, it's it's probably the most unbanked country, or, or one of the top most unbanked countries in Latin America. So, if you combine those two, we believe that uh, Mexico is a much more attractive country compared to any other country in Latin America, including Brazil, for example, uh, because Brazil has a much higher penetra- access to you know, banking and credit products. So we do want to focus in, in Mexico for a while. The other thing is we believe that um, some products can scale easier to other countries and some don't. So for example, the clear example is a company like PayPal. It's a relatively simple product that can ex- that can expand relatively easy to other countries in the world. But there are some products that are actually really a little bit more difficult to, to expand. Credit is one of those products. Um, it's more difficult to expand because you have so many nuances. You have you know, credit risk. You have fraud risk. You have macro risk. You have regulatory nuances. Um, you have different data sources. You have a different credit profiles and an attitude from the population towards uh, you know credit. So we believe that... Um, um, some companies try to expand sooner rather than later. We believe that we want to focus on Mexico more time and then think about expanding to other countries. Uh,
1: that, I was mentioning offline that we have a good number of the audience that they're also in, in the same journey as you. They're, they, they're launching companies. They are you know, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, I wanted to hear a bit of your reflections uh, for founders specifically on, I guess, the, the tougher side of being an entrepreneur. Like, I'm sure you've had to make a lot of hard decisions. I uh, would love to hear if you can share uh, one or two. And also, how, how did you cope? How did you work through uh, those tough times? Um, how did you build, I guess, your, your support uh, system?
0: Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good question. So I would say being a founder is just uh, it's incredibly tough. And sometimes it could be incredibly humiliating because you want investors to invest in your company and and many times they're going to reject you and they're not going to invest in. You want to recruit people and they don't want to work with you. Um, They, you know, you want to work with partners and they don't want to work with you. So it's humiliating to be part, to be a founder, to be honest. Um, It's a, you need to make sure you let your ego go because otherwise it's just uh, unbearable to be honest especially in the early stages of a company, as you grow, it becomes easier and easier, but in, in the early stage, it's still a little bit more difficult. And, um, I would say, um, the toughest decisions are, uh, I would say are typically around people. It's a typically a people you know, it's, um, it's, uh, who do you want to hire? But specifically, you know, sometimes it's who do you, who are you letting go? I think those are Come uh, And, um, I am a first time CEO, um, even though I, I used to work at a, you know, I was head of um, the office of Uyala in Mexico uh, for several years. And and I, I was fortunate to have, you know, coming back to your questions, uh, you know, I was fortunate to have several mentors that, uh, you know, management is just so tough and, and it never gets easy, to be honest, like management never gets easy. It's, there's always something interesting that's happening on. And I was—I think I was able to be very fortunate to have several mentors that are seasoned founders or seasoned operation, oper, operational executives, and that uh, share the same values that I have. Because management is also about values. That's what management is. It's all about values, and um, every ha- everybody does a different—you know—you you, know—everybody approaches management on a different aspect because they have different values. And I think that the most difficult part is is have making sure you can have mentors, sometimes coaches as well, but I would say specifically more mentors that share the same values and have some level of you know some you know good operating ex- uh, and management experience so they can help you navigate into those really really tough decisions i think that's uh that's uh that's what I've been able to do
1: yeah, I mean what I'm hearing is that mentors have definitely been. Influential in your entrepreneurial journey. Uh, so when, when you when you think of, of the last decade, you know who, who comes to my who comes to mind, you know as as influential figures.
0: I would say um, before starting Queski, it was Daryl Brookstein, which I met when I was living in China in two thousand five, and uh, and a little bit after that. And then I joined Uyala, and the founder of Uyala, Bismarck Leppet. He founded Uyala, WiseLine. You know, he was also a, a good mentor of mine. Um, he was my manager, but at the same time, I think he was more my mentor than my manager. Um, and then, and then, just before starting Uyala, a couple of years before, I met someone who transformed my life. He's called uh, he. Fa- he unfortunately passed away a couple of days ago, a couple of years ago. But he he was called Shinya Akamine. Uh, he founded a company called Postini, uh, and he's one of a he used to be one of the partners at Core Ventures Group. He was a tremendous uh, investor and, and and manager and and um, and, uh, and founder and, and and VC. And then you know in the last few years, I would say there's a few people. I would say it's it's Pat Gallagher, one of our board directors. Sharon Alexi, she's um, she's an independent board director, and and she's um, she has you know years and years of uh, operating experience, and we share values significantly. And then right about, um, I, I think that uh, we were fortunate to get, um, you know, Altos Ventures. Like, for example, um, Anthony Lee, he's um managing partner at Altos Ventures. They call him the CEO whisperer. Um, Altos Ventures has a tremendous trajectory. He's, they're incredibly successful. You know, they've been consistently being ranked as the top VCs globally. And I've been fortunate to work with Anthony um, he led our Series B round a few years ago, and more more recently, he led our Series uh, our, our C round, which was more than uh, he. Well, he he didn't he 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 introduced us to the person that led the C round, um, and he helped us a lot into the process. Uh, so we, we raised uh, more than two hundred million in equity and debt. So 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 I think uh, he's been really supportive and really uh, I can tr- truly understand why they say he's the CEO whisperer.
1: Thanks for sharing that, Adal. And, and before I let you go, uh, for when I visit Guadalajara, which is I'm sure going to be very soon, what is one thing I should check out
0: in town? Ah, well, maybe you should go to the Tequila Express, the, the Tequila Train. Um, it's a it's a, it's a, it's a whole of an adventure. You you take it in Guadalajara, and then you go to the Tequila Town, and and you can see the Tequila haciendas and and things like that. So that's one, number one. And then number two, you should definitely pass by and say hi to us and Queski. That's the other important thing uh, that I would recommend, yeah.
1: Two easy decisions. <laughs>
0: All right, Adam. thank
1: you so much. Listen, uh, congratulations on on the success and, and perseverance over the last decade. And I have no doubt we'll, we'll be seeing a lot more from
0: you and Queski. And thank you, thank you, Miguel. Thank you for having me here. And uh, if anybody wants to come to Guadalajara, please drop drop a note and we would love to host you guys. And thank you, Miguel, for having me here.
1: Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Adal Flores, CEO of Quest. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor Rafael Ostria for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.